Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who is totally excited about a new story that just broke less than an hour ago. My co-host... Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we're not going to be reviewing Castle, unfortunately, because it's on a brief hiatus, but Once Upon a Time, Big Bang Theory, and Person of Interest are back. Also, we will be keeping up on our reviews of Bones, Fringe, and Supernatural, as well as giving you our favorite comedic moments from this week's episode of Community, but not Modern Family, because like Castle, it is also on a brief hiatus. And with that, I'm not going to pull things off on you guys any longer. Guys, we're going to go to the favorite section of everyone's News with Nico with an exciting surprise story that Nico just found out about less than an hour ago. Indeed, breaking news today. Fringe renewed for season five. Yes, yes, everybody, this is good news no matter what universe or timeline you live in. Fox has renewed Fringe for a fifth and final 13-episode season. So as we had hoped for, Fox is giving Fringe the Chuck treatment with a final 13-episode season to wrap everything up in a neat little bow. Fringe remains a passion project for Fox president Riley and Warner Brothers eager for the J.J. Abrams thriller to reach that magic syndication enhancing number of 100 episodes agreed to reduce the show's license fee. In other words, that's the amount the studio charges the network for each episode. Bringing it back for a final 13 allows us to provide the climactic conclusion that its passionate and loyal fans deserve. The amazing work the producers, writers, and the incredible, talented cast and crew have delivered the last four seasons has literally been out of this world. Although the end is bittersweet, it's going to be a very exciting final chapter. This news makes me very, very happy. And also probably has redeemed Fox in the eyes of a lot of sci-fi fans. Too. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, really, to give this show the respect it deserves and the proper ending it deserves, that's great. And I'm positive that with these writers getting this extra 13 episodes, the end of this show is going to be extra special. Especially when they know that the end is near and have got an exact point to know when this show is going to end. So that's going to help it greatly. We're going to be in for a great story now that they're not left in the dark about the end of the series. So nice job on Fox on letting Fringe know what the deal is on their whole situation early instead of later to prevent the season finale from not being as good as it could be. So great job with that. In what was mostly a reality TV heavy news week, which I refused to cover on principle, I selected the one story that caught my interest from the reality TV world. ABC's Bachelor no longer casts black people. And is that okay? The Bachelor was recently hit with a class action lawsuit led by two African-American former college football players who say they were brushed off at an open casting call and alleged that ABC, quote, knowingly, intentionally, and as a matter of corporate policy, refused to cast people of color in the role of The Bachelor and Bachelorette, end quotes. In the last four seasons of The Bachelor and the last two seasons of The Bachelorette, there was not a single African-American or Asian-American person in the cast. That 0 for 156 strike rate is pretty much drowning out the producer's self-defense that they've had plenty of participants of color throughout the series' history and that they actively seek diverse participants from varied backgrounds. 
But here's where it gets tricky. The thing is, though you can't rationalize or sanitize people's romantic attractions, even if on paper their criteria might look comically awkward or narrow, once you've cast your ivory-skinned Barbie or Ken, usually a rejected cast member from a prior season, so yeah, they're gonna most likely be white, you pretty much need to fill the room with 25 opposite-sex famosexuals, people who are only seeking fame, that fit his or her tastes. Does that shift the onus to the contestants as being racially discriminatory, or can someone be sued for not being attracted to another race? Would it somehow make the casting process less offensive to throw in a token African or Asian American person just for the sake of pretending to appear culturally diverse? The franchise used to do this in earlier seasons, and it was almost a running joke how often the sole person of color would last two or three rose ceremonies, the better to make the bachelor or bachelorette look open-minded. Personally, I think this show, and others like it, are the seventh sign of the apocalypse, but if they are going to continue to exist, then I prefer a more diverse cast, but I'm not sure this is a battle that belongs in a courthouse. Should Modern Family be forced to add an African-American branch to the Pritchett clan? Should Cougar Town be legally mandated to invite an Indian-American to the cul-de-sac? And is casting for The Bachelor, which, at least in my mind, is as fictitious as any scripted program, all that different? Thoughts? Anyone out there has an idea, please leave a comment on our Facebook, Twitter, or Google Plus pages to let us know your thoughts, because this is really an interesting idea and a changing environment of television in our melting pot of an American society. Next story. BBC's Sherlock scores four BAFTA nominations. Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman, and Moriarty himself, Andrew Scott, all received acting nods. Sherlock rides high in the acting categories, with Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays Holmes, up for Best Actor, and Martin Freeman, who plays Watson, and Andrew Scott, as I said, who plays Moriarty, duking it out for the Best Supporting Actor. The show itself, surprisingly, though, missed out on the drama category. It did get another nomination for, I think it was screenplay or writing, one of the writing categories. I, I forgot to write it down. So good news for BBC, get nominations that it deserves. And the BAFTAs are no joke. They're uh, essentially the Oscars or Emmys of the British television and film industry. So really good work, guys. Any Doctor Who nominations on there? You know, I didn't see any, but there wasn't anything specific about it on in the articles I was reading. All right. Sci-Fi reveals development of DC's Booster Gold show. Sci-Fi held their upfront event this week, and in addition to discussing series we knew were coming, like Defiance, starring Julie Benz and Jamie Murray, they also went over their development slate and a ton of potential series. And while the majority consists of crappy reality television shows, it's the potential scripted series, especially a DC Booster Gold show, that have our attention. As I just mentioned, notably on this list is the fact that the Booster Gold series, based on the DC comic character, is still in active development, as we hadn't really heard any updates on that project since last fall. Also announced today was a potential long-form version, likely meaning a miniseries, for Eyes of the Dragon, based on the Stephen King fantasy novel. It's not difficult to assume sci-fi may have a new interest in fantasy thanks to the success of Game of Thrones, but there is still a lot of potential here for a compelling adaptation. Another new project in development for sci-fi is Gravesite, based on the Harper Connolly book series from True Blood creator Charlene Harris. Work is also underway on a TV version of the Matt Damon film The Adjustment Bureau. 
For a full list of all the Sci-Fi's upcoming series and projects in development, there's a link on our Facebook, Google+, and Twitter pages. It's cool to hear that they're, you know, coming up with show ideas from a mixture of different sources. You know, this is what the Sci-Fi channel was originally designed for. Not these, like, Ghost Hunters International and and things like that. It was designed to be scripted television in the sci-fi, mystery, fantasy, and any combination of those genres. And so it's really great to see that they're jumping into that. And the fact that they're pulling in some superhero stuff with this Booster Gold character. Really exciting news from Sci-Fi. Well, Booster Gold, you know, he's a very underrated and not well-known superhero, but his comics were very well-written, especially the early stuff that they did. It's a very, very good comic series. Really interesting stories when it comes to time travel and that kind of stuff. So it's a perfect fit for Sci-Fi Channel. would be really great to see. And also, we'd have a great time covering it on ATA, because I know Michael would be all over that show. Danica, you would really enjoy it. I know you don't know a whole lot about Booster Gold, minus that really well-done Smallville episode, but... right. The Booster Gold Show would be a lot of fun. I agree. So I'm hoping for it. Keep my fingers crossed. Yeah. Sanitize your TV for three more years of the Kardashians. Oh, God. Your test came back, and I have bad news. There's just no easy way to say this. Your television has been infected with three more years of ease keeping up with the Kardashians. I'm sorry. You might want to consider euthanizing it. I hate all of you that watch this crap and have made these horrors into TV celebrities. Why do we reward people like this and not those with actual talent and something to give to society and not merely turn our impressionable young girls into fame and celebrity horrors just like these terrible, terrible people? I'm ashamed to be a TV critic with filth like this on TV. Of course, the opinions expressed here are those of Nico and not necessarily those of Across the Airways organization and production company. Uh, with the, it comes to the Kardashians, the Across the Airways Association company supports you on that, yes. Okay. Finally, the CW's LA Complex has the worst drama debut ever. Apparently, people just don't care to see a Canadian show about a Los Angeles apartment complex on a network famous for vampires. The CW debuted The L.A. Complex, a drama that was made in Canada and already premiered in that country last week, and just about no one watched it. A mere 646,000 people watched it. Yeah, not even a million, according to Nielsen, which made it the worst debut for a drama series during the major television season ever. To put it in perspective, that was even less than the debut of Remodeled, and about half as many viewers as Haters' debut. Complex opened to only 646,000 viewers, as I mentioned, and a 0.3 rating in the adult demo. By comparison, Ringer averaged 40% higher in the 9 p.m. slot. Yes, LA Complex numbers actually made Ringer look good. Complex also shed half of its 90210 1.2 million 0.6 lead-in. Not good. It just dropped off the table. That network really needs to get their crap together. Yeah, this was not a good premiere. Actually, the second showing of it later in the week did better than the premiere. So that's at least something for them to look at. That network needs to get its priorities figured out. Because what they're doing now is not working. The only good thing is this probably means more supernatural. Yeah, it gives Arrow a better shot. That's true as well. Which I'm hoping that they go ahead with, because I think that would help the network dramatically. They need to get their Smallville audience back, I'm sorry. Cause it's yeah, for sure. Because it's a disaster since that show has gone off. 
And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, with that, we're going to move on to a show that's doing pretty well. With this episode, I was a little nervous that they might not have enough steam to make it or hold over into a second season. Like, I'm kind of borderline. Kaniko, you might disagree with me a little bit, thinking that with the season two, this could start running into Heroes issues. But let's talk about the Once Upon a Time episode. They kind of let me get off my chest some of my issues with this episode that still have a potential to get worked out before the end of the season. So here's our thoughts on the Once Upon a Time episode, The Return. While Emma confronts Regina about Catherine's disappearance, David tries to make amends to marry Margaret, and Mr. Gold tries to learn August's real identity. Meanwhile, in the fairy tale world, Balefire gets his transformed father to agree to return to his original self, untainted by magic. Here's the deal with this week's Once Upon a Time. It was a decent episode, but I just don't think it was the right story to tell four episodes away from the series finale. Because I just didn't feel it ramped things up enough to the level of intensity that's needed for a, for a series finale. Well, actually, the episode sort of ramped things up to an epic finale with what appeared to be a big revelation. But then I felt it went back on itself. What I'm referring to with this criticism, because the whole plotline about August W. Booth being Mr. Gold, a.k.a. Rumpelstiltskin's son. The fairy tale story with the sun attempting to use a magic bean as a gateway to the real world was interesting. Got a nice play on the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. But then once August revealed that he was just using the information that he is Rumpelstiltskin's son to trick him, felt like what we were seeing in the fairy tale world this week was all for naught. I mean, we probably need to know the information that Rumpelstiltskin lost his son to the real world and wants to find redemption for that mistake, but this seems like information that really could have been left for Season 2. I guess what I'm getting at is that Once Upon a Time has reached a point, at least in my mind, where they can stop putting down groundwork for future plot lines, at least until they come back next season, because I feel that there needs to be some sort of a foothold established for this show's audience to return after the summer, and it feels like there's nothing like that right now. While watching this episode, I thought August could have resolved this issue by being Rumpelstiltskin's son, because it could have set up fathers seeking his son's forgiveness plotline that works oh so well on Fridge. But then when August went back on this, to reveal he was dying, I was disappointed that we were left with more questions. The other issue I had with this episode was the scene between Mary Margaret and David was just painful to watch. In fact, there was a point during this exchange when Mary Margaret told David that it would never work out between them, where my sister, who was watching this episode, could have sworn the actress was almost laughing, and I kind of could see where she was coming from on that. And this is unfortunate that I have to make this claim, when these actors both have had strong performances during this season, can have decent chemistry within the fairy tale world, guess Prince Charming and Snow White. But in the real world, it's just not working. Maybe that the writers really need to do something for this whole situation to just move on, because it's just getting annoying to me, I guess. As for things I liked about this episode, I was glad that we got to see more Henry, that Emma finally took the initiative to stand against Regina for the noble purpose of protecting her son, because it's really been a long time coming. But I wish we would have gotten more of this, from the stamp that it would have been a way to ramp things up for the season finale, like I was hoping for with this episode. Instead of the writers building our hopes up for a really cool plotline with August being Rumpelstiltskin's son, only to take it away in the end. Finally, I hope that next week's episode is all about what we are seeing in the previews of Emma taking her place as the hero. Because with Once Upon a Time having one of the best pilots of this TV season, I would hate to see it fizzle out with a finale that's not strong enough to carry it through the summer in a way that maintains the show's audience. 
So with that, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this episode of Once Upon a Time. While everyone in town was distracted by Catherine's return, a sort of connection was drawn between August Booth and Rumpelstiltskin and faked us all out as we thought that maybe August was Mr. Gold's or Rumpelstiltskin's son. When we cut to the fairy tale world, we got to watch Balefire, Rumpelstiltskin's son, become increasingly unhappy with his father's growing powers. He seeks help from the Blue Fairy to rid his father of powers without having to kill him and assume those powers. This was heartwarming, and I like knowing that there was a point where Rumpelstiltskin could have changed his fate. He loves his son, but ultimately chooses power over leaving with Balefire, or however you say his name, via a magic bean portal to a world without magic. But I don't get this. His son was everything to him, and I don't feel like the power had taken over him enough to overrule that love. And the importance of love in, in the fairy tale world has been beat into our heads all season, and this decision doesn't follow those rules. It does give Rumpelstiltskin a convenient motivation to create the curse that ends up bringing everyone to Storybrooke, so at least there's that. But I felt his love would have overcome his lust for power. I felt like the show forgot itself for a minute or needed to suspend its own rules to push this story forward, and that's always a dangerous game to play. Yes, I agree. Now, all this talk about the sun, along with some other obvious clues, led to Booth being Belfire in our minds, or Rumpelstiltskin's son. I was willing to buy it, even if it was forced on us only in this episode, and didn't really fit the previous character development of August. But I was duped. I'm a sap, and I wanted Rumpelstiltskin to be happy. Or rather, I wanted him to have a chance at redemption through reconciling with his son. Or maybe I'm just a sucker. Even given that, though, Booth's turnabout in this episode still didn't come as a complete shock to me, nor really anyone watching the show with me. We weren't all that surprised. The fact that Booth wasn't his son should have delivered a big punch, but really it swung and missed. It also raised a lot of questions for me as to whether Booth is a good guy, whether he'll end up with Emma, or if he is merely grasping at straws to find a cure for his disease. He had hoped Emma would be able to break the curse and somehow transport him and everyone else to the fairy tale world where he could use magic to be cured. However, Emma is not working fast enough, and he is getting sicker by the day, and had hoped that he may be able to use the Dark One to cure himself. But as we all know, magic doesn't work in our world, and the knife had no power over the Dark One here. One thing I loved about this episode was Robert Carlyle's performance in both Storybrooke and the Fairy Tour world. He played a version of Rumpelstiltskin that was between the normal man he once was and the evil being we've seen him become. Yeah, and it was great. I gotta give him credit for that, too. Yeah, you can see the Dark One starting to take over his mind and the madness setting in as he kills people without concern. He wants to be grounded for his son, but he doesn't see anything wrong with his actions. So you can see how he's being beginning to be twisted. And back in Storybrooke, Mr. Gold's joy over thinking he has his son back really jumped off the screen. You could see it in Robert Carlyle's face and his actions. It really was a great performance. And I thought and, the scene with uh, Dr. Hopper did it really well, too. Yeah, absolutely. I was really impressed by both of these performances. Unfortunately, all we really learned in this episode, or one of the things we learned in this episode, is that Booth might be from the fairy tale land, or at least have visited it at some point, because he seems to desperately want to return there. That answer just leads to more questions. 
which fairy tale character is he? Or is he merely the author of these versions of the stories, as Dan and I have suggested previously? Why was he able to leave Storybrooke? If he is a character, why was he able to leave? I see now why he is so enthusiastic about getting Emma to believe in magic. He wants to go back to the fairy tale world to be healed, or if he is from there, he wants to go home. As close as I can figure out his purpose to be, he seems to want to return to the fairy tale world to be healed of his cancer or whatever it was that's killing him. Although, the writers need to do a better job of starting to answer some of these questions as we head into this final few episodes before the finale, because right now we are getting more confused and not more amped up for this finale. You're absolutely right. They, they've laid the groundwork for this season. Stop laying groundwork and start answering some of those questions, and we'll get into the more groundwork and more ideas of where we're going in season two. Yeah. So, we're, we're already done with the setup for this season finale just get us to the season finale and keep us amped up for it so that we get that great cliffhanger at the end and then we can go forward from there so i thought this was a good episode kind of confused me as to the overall goals of the season but i think we'll see this play out more in future episodes and probably in the into the future seasons and then then it will make more sense why they put this here but as of right now, I'm just really asking more questions than I'm having answered. And this isn't the right time to do that. Right. With the finale coming, you've got to have something to latch on to. And Booth being the writer and almost like a mentor, like Yoda-like character helping Emma believe was something I was kind of holding on to. And the, to lose that was not what I was expecting. And almost, as you said, made me feel more confused. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Because he's not, he's not a straightforward character anymore. Now we don't know where he is. He seems self-centered now. And not this heroic character we originally thought he was. We're not sure if he's there to help anymore. Right. And that's a problem. Right. It can be a very good thing in the future. Right. I'm, I'm not saying that I don't like this idea. But this late in the season, it right. seems unusual to do it here. And people could argue, you know, Fringe in the first season was a show that put a lot of groundwork down, that left a lot of questions open. But by this point in the season, we already knew, we already kind of have a, had an idea that there was an alternate reality out there. We didn't right. necessarily see it, but it was there. It was implied. And then the finale, of course, said, yes, it is for sure there. But that was something to hang on to. And now, with Once Upon a Time, I just, I don't get where we're going. That's the main thing. And Emma, I guess, going against Regina started in this episode, but I think that's more of what this episode should have been about. Agreed. And just a real quick thing to end it. Did you agree with me on the Snow White, I mean, David and Mary Margaret thing? Yeah, that we've been saying it? that for a couple weeks yeah. now, that we've been kind of sick of it. And this episode was an attempt to sort of start the reconciliation, maybe. But really, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I've yeah, lost exactly. interest. I will care in the future of course we do want to see them ultimately end up together but at the same time right now they need to go their separate ways or just drop it and not talk about it for a little while because I'm, I'm sick of it it's just not where I want the story arc to go I think our main focus right now needs to be on Emma and explaining what the heck August is doing there yeah and you know we had originally talked about Emma and August and, and being that next couple or love interest that we wanted to see or start to see happening but I almost I almost think I'm going to disagree with us at this point and say, I want the love story to develop to be Emma and Henry 
not in a gross way, in the mother-son relationship being repaired, ultimately brought together. And I think that is where the focus is turning in these last couple episodes. And that makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. And really, I think that's the relationship that's worked the best. Yeah. Very good call there, Nico. So with that, we're going to move on to an episode of Bones that I thought was less of going off the rails since it's returned from hiatus. Got really focused on reminding us about the relationships of this show that really work and how they can work in an effective manner. With the Bones episode, The Warrior and the Wuss. When remains are discovered in the middle of the woods, the team is called in to determine the how and why this trucking company employee was murdered. Meanwhile, Hodgins has caught a shopping bug and seems to think he has an unlimited budget as he augments his lab with high-tech toys. At home, Booth copes with Parker's return from England and the realization he's no longer an only child. This week, I thought that we got a good episode of Bones that seemed to take itself much more serious than we've had since the return of the show from hiatus. And it really seemed to have put things back on track, at least for now. Again, this episode wasn't completely serious, as we did get some fun moments involving Cam being upset over Hodgins buying too many high-tech toys, even though he probably could purchase them out of his own pocket. And we also got the fun scene with Clark and Hodgins performing an autopsy on a worm. But in looking back, most of the comedy took a backseat to the drama, which mainly focused on Parker, Busan's reaction to his new baby stepsister. Which was a plotline that I kind of felt, even at the beginning of the season, really needed to be addressed. On that note, it first appearing that Parker was against having a baby sister, and Booth's relationship with Bones did a nice job of keeping my interest from a character development standpoint, because it took Brennan and Booth's romance to a new place of challenging them to act as a family in working out whatever problems Parker was dealing with. Also, even though the whole situation was just a big misunderstanding regarding Parker trying to keep the mobile he was building for Christine a secret, Booth even thinking that his son was upset about no longer being an only child led to some great individual character building for this show's lead couple as well, with Booth implying that being upset with Parker made him like his abusive father. Get Brennan coming to Booth with the concern that Parker was violently angry about their new family, because it was a huge step forward get her developing empathy. Plus, the Parker conflict did a nice job of setting up one of the best sweet scenes that we've had in a long time, where Lance finally had enough of the usual dance of getting Booth to admit that he had a problem, get threatened to ditch him if he didn't come clean. Moving on to the weekly mystery, it also did a nice job of keeping my interest by throwing in a couple of surprises, such as the murder victim's son calling 911 on him for trying to beat up his karate teacher, in retaliation for the son being beat up by the teacher's kid, who shockingly turned out to be a girl that also beat up on the murder victim for harassing her. Oh, and having the girl beat up the murder victim being put up on YouTube was a really great call by the writers since I would have never come up with using hotspots where the video went viral to locate the killer, especially when it brought the evidence back to the suspect that wrote off at the beginning of the episode in a way that really made sense. As for issues I had with this episode, the only glaring thing was Hodgins using the new high-tech toys that he brought to brew alcohol for his own Founder's Day party, because it was another blatant example of this show's writers failing to remember that the characters on the show could get fired since labs like the Jeffersonian probably have very strict rules when it comes to working with evidence. 
Then again, I remember something being mentioned in a past episode about Hodgins, the incredible wealthy family, putting up money for the Founders Day party. So I guess that makes this scene okay. Or maybe they just didn't know how to end the Jeffersonian lab plotline this week. Anyway, on my part, I should just be happy that this was a step forward for Bones that's returning from hiatus instead of a step back. Leaving me asking the question, what did you think about this episode, Nico? Dan, I had a hard time coming up with what I wanted to say about this episode of Bones. It was not a good episode, but it was not a horrible episode either. So with this season, I guess that that means I should be saying I loved the episode, and that makes me sad. The entire Parker story arc was so predictable that I called it early on. They tried so hard to be cutesy with the whole thing and kept us guessing at what he was doing and why he seemed to be against the baby, but really it was kind of shoddy work at best on the writer's parts. I know they are limited by the acting abilities of the child actor, and maybe that limited them with what they could do, but really this was not good and almost bordered on crap and was unnecessary in my estimation of the overall mystery or story and it was kind of just kind of trying to bring him back into the story and give him a reason or a cutesy way to accept his younger sister. Well, I feel like they needed to address it, but maybe this wasn't the right way to go about it. Yeah, I think it would have been better if he was having trouble adjusting to her instead of just being a perfect family situation where the parents overreacted and the kids were fine. I think it would have been a better way to go if he was struggling with not being his dad's only child anymore and having this new family, but not being psycho about it either, you know? So, like, I think they... they, It's like they went too extreme, Yeah. so they had to resolve it. Yeah. Now, the mystery this week was decent, and I liked that we returned to the first subject at the end, and it turned out to be exactly what it initially looked like. But they did a good job of leading us down multiple other pathways before they finally brought us 360 degrees back to where we first looked. Also, I do agree with you, Dan, that the YouTube video of the girl beating up the guy was a nice touch and a decent gag for this week, even if it was a little too staged. I mean, come on, guys. Do TV people not know that YouTube videos or what they look like? They're never this perfectly framed, and they usually taken from a bad angle or are all grainy. So actually shoot it with a camera phone next time for authenticity. Otherwise, it was a pretty good move, and I I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good way of bringing technology into the the mystery, and that was kind of interesting. And what kid doesn't have a camera phone these days? So yeah, if there was an altercation, more than likely somebody got it on video. Really, what else can I say about this episode? I was not all that enamored with the Hodgins versus Cam scenario this week, though I did love Hodgins doing microsurgery on the worm. That was fun. The party at the end of the episode seemed entirely unnecessary and forced. Really not needed and not well done. This episode was a composition of tiny grievances that added up to a fairly poor episode that was only noteworthy because it did not suck as bad as the first two episodes back from hiatus. One small step forward last week, and I'm going to have to disagree, Dan, and I'm going to say it was a one-half step back this week. And that's all I have to say about that. I just don't get what's going on with these people at Bones. It's like, they started off the first half of the season fine. Yes. And now they're, like, losing their marbles. Like, what is going on over there is my point right now. I don't get it. And, like, I'm almost now telling myself that it's good because it's been bad for so long. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think a lot of people are where my brain is at right now. Because I was talking to a friend of mine about the whole Bones thing. And she's like, oh, it's not that bad. And then you start thinking about it, it's like, eh... 
it's not as good as it was. Yeah, if if you want to know how bad it is, go back and watch the first two seasons. And then go back and watch Since the Return from Hiatus. Well, you know, I was thinking about some of those episodes, like dealing with Bones and her dad. Mm -hmm. Like when he came back and he was on trial for murder. And they had that, you know, that courtroom episode where she had to go against the, the entire Squint Squad to clear her dad's name and all that. That was some really good TV, you know, yeah. good drama and good stuff. And just the show just doesn't have that anymore. Things aren't conflicted enough for these people to make it interesting. But yeah, it almost seems they, like everything worked out for them. And now it's boring as crap to watch. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one thing we always fear with whether or not the main couple gets together. And it can be bad and it can be good. We've seen it work very well, or, or at least work fairly well, on Chuck. We've seen it work somewhat well in the first half of this season with Brennan and Booth. But we've also seen it go terrible with the second half of this yeah. season with Brennan and Booth. And, you know, ever since Moonlighting, there's been the debate on whether or not you can get them together before the end of the series. Because in that show, many people believe that as soon as they got together and after that point, the quality of the show nosedived. So there's always been this debate and the conventional wisdom has been you cannot get them together until the very end. That's why Jagged didn't work and, you know, they didn't put them together and they had to rush it because they thought they had another season to finally get them together and bones got them together and went against supposedly the conventional wisdom and maybe conventional wisdom is proving correct in this case because it's not working the second half but i think it's not just because they got those two together because they also have angela and hodgins together they also have daisy and sweets together again but awkward and they have cam and her daughter and everything seems to be working out okay for them so there's no real conflict unless we all of a sudden had a new intern or a new character who's a consistent intern well i'm thinking like you almost need one of the interns to pull a zach and be a bad guy again just to yeah. give you some sort of conflict or god forbid one of these this hacker guy comes in and kills one of the kids or kills one of the characters you know we got the the loss of vincent nigel murray which led to the very good story together. arc of them getting together so maybe we need a death of a shocker hey give cam something to do kill her yeah Drive the story forward by killing her and then them having to rally together to try and find the killer. And it not be resolved in one week, be it a multi-week or half a season till they finally catch the guy. Or heck, you know, I mean, like if they don't want to lose that actress, like have something happen to Bones' dad. Maybe he gets mixed up in something or somebody from the past comes back. They've done that already. So I, I think guess. it would be kind of repetitive because okay. yeah. he's already been on trial. He's already, you know, yeah, so. So that would be kind of old. Kind it of would be, something. you know, but they do need to mix it up like that. And we shouldn't be the only ones coming up with ideas. They need to have yes. ideas like that. I'm really hoping we see another one of those hacker episodes soon because that was, as I've said twice already, that was a decent and good story arc. So he's a good soon. big bad or at least, you know, has the potential of being a big bad. So but why not bring him back soon so that we're it's not almost like we need him to be around for like four or five episodes in a row. Oh, absolutely. To keep this going, because right now there is, as I said, there is no conflict. It's just going through the motions. Yes. This show's too good for that to happen, so get your butt out of the finder and figure this out. 
Not that I'm saying that the finder's not a good show or anything, but you guys have got to get your priorities straight here or balance better. And really, honestly, Nico, I think really this should have been the last season. Oh, I've, I said that earlier. I, I think what we should have had is them get together at the end of six and then just roll this out and just let us have our, you know, victory lap with Bones and Booth being together, have them have the baby and be done. Agreed. That's that's what they should have done. And Fox, I'm telling you, next season, give them the fringe treat. Because I, you, just, you can't write this out anymore. Unless they do something huge at the end of this season. Maybe. Yeah, give it a 13, not anymore. And Castle writers, I hope you're watching this show to be forewarned of what could happen on your show. So we're going to leave it at that. Again, I think with that, we're going to move on to our thoughts about this week's episode of Big Bang Theory. So let's talk about the Big Bang Theory episode, The Stag Convergence. All started with a Big Bang. A bachelor's party and his sexual past puts Howard's marriage to Bernadette in jeopardy. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory would have to be the scene where all the guys on the show were sitting around the table giving speeches to Howard. Honestly, I can't pinpoint what was the funniest part of this scene, but everything that Sheldon, Leonard, Kripke, and Raj had to say created big laughs. Except for Stuart, whose speech kind of left me a little depressed. By the way, having Will Wheaton as a guest at Howard's bachelor party was a nice touch. Big Bang Theory producers, definitely a nice touch. Since they're keeping his appearances fresh by Will now being friends with Sheldon. So with that, Nico, I'm going to hand things over to you with your favorite comedic moment from this week's great episode of Big Bang Theory. I have to agree that the best scene of this episode was the terrible toast that everyone gave at the bachelor party. But despite the laughs in this scene, the overall episode was not all that funny in my estimation. I guess maybe that was the intention this week as it was more of a Howard and Bernadette relationship episode, but I still would have liked a little more from this episode. Not bad, but they'll be looking to do better next time. And I think that's the case. I think they didn't want to do too much here because they probably have big stuff in store for the season finale. Right. And they've got, what, 24 episodes? So we've got two more to go with them? I think so. Okay. And I, I'm curious if it's going to be a two-part thing with the wedding or whatever's going to happen with that. If they get together, who knows? They could throw a surprise at us. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to have another problem with the wedding. Not the same style, but I think something else is going to happen that's going to cause, put the wedding in jeopardy. But I think ultimately the finale will be the wedding. Okay, that's cool. That'll be a fun thing to look forward to. Yep. Anyway, we're going to move on to another incredibly creative episode of this show that I think this needed to be done a long time ago, and I'm glad this show had the guts to go ahead and do it. So let's talk about the community episode, Basic Lupine Urology. When the group's science project is destroyed, they decide to hold a trial to find the criminal, which a reluctant Professor Kane, played by Michael K. Williams, presides over. While Troy and Abed believe they have discovered the perpetrator, Jeff soon realizes there's much more to the story than is believed. My community chuckle for the week was this episode being structured and filmed like an episode of Law & Order. Because with the police procedural and its spin-offs on the air like a million times a day, the show was ripe for being made fun of. And it was even better that it was done by a show on the same network. Plus, bringing Michael Ironside in as the lawyer trying against Jeff and Annie was outstanding and made a nice nod to the movie A Few Good Men, if that's what community's writers were going for. But Starburns being killed off by his own meth that he was cooking? 
Say it isn't so, Nico. Say it isn't so. Because I pass things out to you with your community chuckle. Then again, I have to agree. The entire episode is my community chuckle for this week. Community has done it again. This time we got the Greendale version of an episode of Law & Order that was pure perfection. They took almost every character they could get from their backstory and put them in this episode inside a Law & Order story, and the result was phenomenal. They hit every Law & Order beat, they had every camera angle down, and just like the Ken Burns documentary episode a few episodes ago, it never got strained or tiresome. Story-wise, this may have been basic Dick Wolf, but really, this was a classic community episode. And how awesome was the Michael Ironside's cameo? Great stuff all around. And I love the Inspector Space Time badges that Troy and Abed were wearing. Yeah. And Troy's tie was pretty awesome, too. Everything about their outfits was, was great. Yes, Spider-Man tie, nice tie. So with that, we're going to move into more of the dramatic part of Tuesday night with our discussion on the Person of Interest episode. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Masta Nayana. Reese goes undercover as an armored car company employee and faces memories from his past with the CIA. With this week's person of interest, I thought it was a really well-structured episode that tied everything, including what started out as a completely separate plotline with Fusco investigating HR, together into a nice little bow, lending itself nicely to the flashbacks and surprises that occurred. Again, this episode did kind of start out slow, with time being spent on catching us up with the reoccurring characters on the show after being on a two-week hiatus. Got setting up the players on an armored car robbery predicted by the machine. But once the robbery went down, things got kind of crazy, because the armored car company employee with the wife's son turned out to be the bad guy. Now normally if a show wants to have a twist occur with the guy who has a family, they just kill him off. But person of interest in keeping up with the persona it's had all season went the gutsy route by sending the guy who had no criminal record to the dark side. Carver, that wasn't the only surprise we got in this episode. Because the big payday that HR sent Fusco to pick up was the same platinum stolen by the armored car employee, which was a great move on the writer's part because it took a standard number or person of interest that would have probably bored us and made it more interesting with adding a connection to one of the show's overarching storylines. Plus, as an added benefit, the armored car company's employee being connected to HR was such a surprise that I completely overlooked the woman he was having an affair with being the mastermind behind the platinum theft. Now with this reveal, the connections between the armored car should have ended right there, like the average television thriller. But person of interest, once again, would have stepped farther to impress me by bringing things back around to HR, with the police captain involved with the organization showing up to kill the armored car's employee's mistress. And then Fusco turning back around to shoot the captain when he was about to kill Reese thus resolving Fusco's good cop, dirty cop identity crisis caused by Reese making him infiltrate HR. Ultimately, what I liked best out of this whole armored car HR story were the themes established setting up the season finale with Finch not thinking that he really accomplished anything, but this week's person of interest case proved that the machine can't always save someone from their fate. And Reese making the comment about the problem with being the bad guy, that there's always something worse. And really, that philosophy seemed to ring true at the end of this episode. Because the big bad CIA man, Agent Snow, enters a hotel room thinking he's tracked down Reese. But what he finds instead is Reese's old partner, who guns down Snow's partner, and then shoots Snow in the leg, telling him they have some catching up to do based on what was shown in the flashbacks regarding Snow causing she and Reese churn on each other in an attempt to destroy the machine. 
On that note, I'm sure the writers are planning on clearing this up a little more in the next couple episodes. But with the flashbacks in this episode, I was a little confused somewhat on who exactly sent Reese and his partner to destroy the machine. From my standpoint, and kind of this is the way it's been throughout most of the season until this episode, I thought Snow, along with the CIA, or just dirty agents of the CIA, wanted the machine destroyed because it would notify the government of the crimes they were committing. But then when the woman who talked to Finch's nephew in the present day in a previous episode showed up to give Reese and his partner their mission briefing in the flashback, I began to wonder if Finch had something to do with all the dead people in the Chinese city and the missile strike, which Reese thought killed his partner in an attempt to keep the machine from getting in the wrong hands. Again, even though I might not necessarily have all my facts straight about this, or may have just forgotten a couple details just through this whole story being spread out throughout the course of the season, I could tell you the future in the universe of this show is probably going to be about Reese's old partner inflicting revenge on him for leaving her to die by turning his current partners against him. And if their interaction in this episode about trust is any indication, I have a feeling the first person Reese's old partner may approach is Carter. But we'll see. She could also go after Finch or maybe Fusco. So it hopes that you can shed a little light on my confusion with, with the flashbacks. They're going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this week's Person of Interest. This was another great episode of Person of Interest. The title of this episode, however you pronounce it, Matsaya Nayana, is an ancient Hindu proverb meaning that a bigger fish will always eat smaller fish when the pond is all murky and no laws or order exists. Nice. And that was indeed the moral of this story. The coolest part of this episode by far were the flashbacks to Reese's 2010 past. Clandestine missions in China, double crosses, multiple double crosses, software engineers massacred, requests for vacation denied, Reese longingly looking out toward the horizon and receiving a phone call from his ex. It was Reese and Kara Stanton on a gopher mission to retrieve a laptop from China, and we thought we knew the following. Reese was supposed to kill Kara once the intel on the laptop was attained, and he carried out that order. At least, that is what Snow told us a few episodes ago in present day. Though Dan and I suspected that Reese killed her because Kara had killed Reese's love. But it appears that Snow or someone at the CIA ordered both team members to kill each other to ensure the destruction of the Chinese copy of the machine. So, of course, none of that actually happened. Yeah. Instead, Kara shot Reese right after he was going to shoot her in the back and left him for dead because she had the same orders to kill him too. Her work done... And having marked a landing zone with blue glow sticks, she awaited extraction. But Reese figured out that they weren't serving as a beacon, but as a target for someone to bomb the facility because the CIA wanted to cut ties with everyone who had any knowledge of the intel or slash the machine. Reese escapes, leaving Kara standing slack-jawed, wondering what just happened while a missile headed her way. Goodbye, Kara, right? So Reese didn't actually kill you, though. And now she's come back for revenge on Snow and the CIA, and maybe even Reese and Finch, since she is most likely possibly the hacker Root from a few episodes back that took on Finch and almost schooled him. But then again, maybe she's not. Maybe that's a completely other character that we haven't really met yet. Who knows for sure with this show? Anyway... I'm not sure why she's seeking revenge on Reese, because really, he didn't shoot her when he had the chance, and even warned her that she had just essentially marked herself for a bombing. So why is she coming after him? Is it because he's working with Finch, and she is coming after Finch for having designed the machine that caused the CIA to turn on her and try and kill her? I'm guessing it has something to do with that. 
Regardless, this was a great episode, and while I've mostly talked about the flashbacks and how they relate to the upcoming episodes with Kara, Reese, and Finch, the HR story arc was pretty awesome as well. The heist was elaborate enough to fool even Reese, who is usually all over these kinds of things, yeah. but he's fooled this time. Lucky for him, Lionel was there to bail him out and at the same time get rid of an HR lieutenant. But this time he had a plan to make it all work out and will probably ingratiate himself further into HR as he was able to kill the guys who killed his old captain and a lieutenant in the HR organization. Right. Overall, great episode. Can't wait for these final three episodes. This is going to be one hell of a season finale. Well, it's great, you know, because we thought last week with Elias going to jail, we're like, oh, well, things kind of felt wrapped up, you know, and then they throw us right back into the CIA plotline. There's big stuff to deal with with that. Yeah, and they also mentioned the task force. So the task force is probably going to come back in the next three episodes and become a, a thorn in everybody's side. Yeah, and and I wouldn't be surprised if they somehow tie Elias back into this. There's still, I mean, there's still the door open for that. Yeah, I could see them bringing Elias back in, and of course we know his his right hand man, the guy with the scar, is still out there, and he's essentially right. carrying out Elias's orders from jail. So he's the number one guy now that Elias is behind bars, and he's doing everything that Elias would normally do himself. So right. it's there's still the possibility that his organization is going to come after Reese and Finch again. Yeah. Now, was I right? Was that woman that gave them the briefing and the flashback? That was the woman that the nephew talked to? To be honest, I, I'm not sure. Okay, because I, I want to say it was. It's very possible that it was. And it, wasn't she, was she, did she lie to him for Finch? No, she lied to him to keep him safe. And Finch was just watching in the background. Exactly. Okay, so Finch didn't really have a connection to this. That woman has no idea that Finch exists. Okay. She thinks his father was the developer of the machine, where Finch was actually hiding in the background. Okay. Remember, because he was he was using Nathan as the public face of the partnership, and Finch was the behind-the-scenes guy, and nobody knew he existed. But they might know now because Reese's old partner might have contacted her or tracked her down. That They together I, might have figured it out. I don't think she would have figured it out yet. Okay. But I, no, I'm not saying that the, the partner hasn't figured it out. But I don't think anybody in the CIA oh, or no. the NSA, which was what the, this woman was. She was NSA. They None of them know that Finch exists or that the machine right. is still working and spitting out these numbers for him. But, but Reese's partner could know Fitch could exist. If she's Root, then she knows he exists. Okay. If not, then I'm not sure that she knows okay. about him either. Because what I could see is that woman that lied to the nephew being Root, and she needed an operative. So she hired Reese's old partner. The only reason I'd say no is because Root was a brunette and she was a blonde. Ah, okay. Well, then maybe Root is Reese's partner. Right. That's why. That's one of the yeah. reasons I thought initially that it could be her. Because next week, Finch does something to throw Reese off finding out information or knowing the identity of the person of interest. Right. To keep something quiet, which we don't know what that is. For whatever reason, it's going to be somebody from Reese's past or somebody that Reese might not want to save, is my guess. Yeah. And, that, and that's why he gives him the day off, essentially. And he says it's his birthday present or something like that to try and keep him from figuring it out. But of course, Reese is yeah. smarter than that. He's not going to listen to that. That'd be interesting to see. Otherwise, I'm just excited to see where this show is going to go. Yep. Great setup for the season finale. So it's going to be good stuff. I'm excited. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about a show that's got me really, really fired up for the finale, especially now that we know that it's going to be a season finale and not a series finale. 
So we know that there's more story to tell, and we're just kind of excited to see where Fringe is going to lead us on the final leg of their show beginning next year. That with these last three episodes of season four. So I'm very excited about that. Get with that, I'm just proud to talk about this excellent Fringe episode, the title Worlds Apart. The Fringe team on both sides fight a common cause and developments are made regarding the Cortexafan children. Some of you who are listening to this podcast probably heard me say this earlier in the show, but for those of you who skipped past it, the creators of Once Upon a Time really should be taking notes here. Because unlike the ABC freshman fantasy drama, Fringe proved with this episode that it knows how to set up for a season finale. Heck, Fringe has gone to parallel worlds, inside people's heads, backwards and forwards through time, and even erased its main hero from existence to bring him back to a world where no one knew him. But with all those crazy, mind-blowing events, this show has taken discoveries dating back to season one, could have culminated them into one seriously dastardly plan, enacted by this show's current big bad, David Robert Jones. And what Jones wants to do is destroy both universes that have made up this show's setting to reshape them into a universe of his making by using the various people who made up a lot of the memorable one-off characters featured throughout every season of Fridge, the Cortexafan children, otherwise known as Olivia's nursery school classmates, who, like Olivia, was experimented on by Dr. Bishop in an attempt to return Peter to the other side. In this particular episode, the Cortexafan child that gained the Fringe team's primary focus was Nick Lane, the empath who first appeared in Season 1, that started as a villain and then became an ally, until he was killed by the other side's Lincoln. But with Peter being erased from existence, he's now back at helping Jones destroy both realities. Again, things get kind of crazy, with both Fringe teams capture Nick and throw him into an interrogation room, because he tells Olivia that Jones is on his side, and trying to prevent an upcoming war with the other side. But in my opinion, I think the threat that Jones is referring to comes from the observers, and his new reality will effectively erase them from existence. However, with this being the third to final episode of the season, the Fringe team doesn't even come close to stopping Jones, as Nick manages to escape their custody after sending everyone on a wild goose chase, leading us to the real weight of this episode, which came from the decision to close the bridge between our world and the other side to stop Jones from destroying both universes. From my perspective, I should have saw this coming when Bolivia began talking about how she never saw a rainbow on our side. But I was somewhat in denial because I knew closing the bridge would mean that we would lose Lincoln and that was a hard thing to stomach. I was fine, really, when his other side counterpart died because he was still alive on our side, but the idea of no Lincoln made his goodbye to Peter kind of sad to me, even though it was really well done. Plus, before the bridge was closed, they finally gave us the scene we've always wanted, between Walter and Walternet. And was it the confrontation between good and evil that I originally dreamed it would be? No. This scene was something far greater, as the two otherworldly counterparts who were at odds for so long forgave each other on the notion that Peter became the noble man they always wanted him to be. In a scene which once again proved John Noble needs to go down as one of those great sci-fi actors that fits among the ranks of Leonard Nimoy to David Duchovny. Plus, this scene made me start to tear up watching this show for the second week in a row, which is pretty impressive for a show to do that. That normally doesn't happen for me. So nice job, guys. Finally, in my closing thoughts, as someone who was at first completely again spending a lot of time with the characters on the other side, the fear of it taking away from Dr. Bishop and Peter, I share in Walter's sentiments that I will miss Bolivia and her fringe team. Because setting this show between two universes turned out to be the most cutting-edge imaginative plot device of the past decade, and maybe beyond. 
Although closing the door on such an amazing concept kept forcing us to say goodbye to what essentially were really well-developed doppelgangers was a perfect setup for a season finale because it was essentially like killing off a whole group of characters without having to suffer through the anguish of knowing they came to a tragic end. But how the goodbye between both worlds was written, we still got that feeling of loss, strongly enticing us to watch the next episode with the hope that our side's fringe team will bring David Robert Jones to justice for taking such wonderful characters away from us. On that note, this may sound extremely cheesy and cliche, but it's my hope that next season's plotline will lend itself over to the fringe team on the other side, having to find a way back to our world in order to help us save it, or vice versa. Because I want Bolivia to see that rainbow she talked about, gosh darn it. So with that, I pass things out to you, Nico. Got this bittersweet episode of Fridge where we had to say goodbye to a great group of characters. Yeah, as I mentioned in the News with Nico section, the announcement was made this week that Fringe would be returning next season for a 13-episode final run that would give us the ending we deserve. With that news, this episode made perfect sense to set up an amazing story arc. Dan, though the bridge is closed, I don't think this will act as essentially a death of an entire set of characters because I think we will still see both sides working towards the same goal, but they will just not be able to communicate. I foresee us still seeing the other side and getting stories from their side in the next few episodes. As for the Walter and Walter in it scene, I have to agree that it was not what we initially thought it was going to be two seasons ago, but in a sense it was better like you said. The fact that they could reconcile over the knowledge that Peter became the man they both had hoped and both were scared that closing the bridge would make them both lose him forever. This was a touching scene that was expertly played by John Noble, but really Does that come as a surprise to you anymore? Not really. He's brilliant. This episode was focused on closing the bridge and made a lot of sense at this point in the season because essentially it will act as a bridge for the rest of the season. 95% of this episode was just set up for that ending when they closed the bridge, which in turn is just set up for the two-part season finale. In the end of this episode, not only did we get that great Walter Walternet scene, but Each person and their doppelganger had a great scene as well. Well, the Olivias, Astrid's, and then Peter and Lincoln, who are the Olivia's love interests, all had their moments. The episode wraps up with a touching montage that shows all the characters and their alternate counterparts giving each other one last goodbye, and then they're gone. If this sticks, it's a major development in the Fringe series lore. But that may be a big if, because Fringe has a a history for undoing its own plot developments. In fact, that's kind of been the theme of this entire season. So it's uncertain if this dramatic change, which undoes so much investment and seemingly throws a monkey wrench into David Robert Jones' plans is really the last we'll see of the alternate universe. As I mentioned before, I doubt it will be the last time we see it. And ultimately, I think they will reopen the bridge once they have vanquished David Robert Jones for good, or sometime before the series finale next season. And saying series finale next season still makes me happy three days later. Great news, good episode, good week for French. Now, do you think we will see the other side again within the next two episodes? I do. For the finale? Okay. I do. I think we will see completely independent story arcs, them fighting to try and find David Robert Jones on our side okay. and then on their side. And them, and we'll see the two separate worlds like we first saw right. when, when they introduced the idea. 
Because we only have two episodes left. So I just wasn't sure if there was the time to be able to see them. And I know it's a two-part episode, so... Right, but I think it's going to be essentially two separate episodes combined together to show what they're doing on one side and what they're doing on the other side. So, like, they're going to be parallel story arcs, and we're going to see... They're not going to be, like, what happened on this side, and then they report to the other side, and then where they go from there. It'll be they're both going straight without any communication and hopefully end up at the same point at the end where they're able to defeat David Robert Jones and ultimately open the bridge because I think to defeat the observers which is the next logical enemy they're going to need to work together well, yeah, and the, and the thing is, what you're saying with this, it's it, with, in terms of the end of this season, is you're saying that it's not going to be like what they did in season three, where one episode takes place on our side, and another episode takes place on the other side. What you're saying is that throughout the episode, it's going to go back and forth. Yes. It's going to be intercut between both sides. Yeah, rather throughout, than, okay. exactly, rather than being separate episodes, they're going to be separate story arcs in the same episode, and essentially be two episodes in the same episode because they're going to be completely independent and there will be no crisscross between those story arcs because they they can't communicate well there might be crisscross in the fact that david robert jones might still be able to transport between universes we don't know if his machine will still work I foresee that it won't. So he's trapped on whichever side he was on. Maybe. Maybe because before the bridge, they could cross over. I mean, the Yes, show but with so the that... bridge, it made it a lot more successful yeah. and a lot more easily done. Before the bridge, it was much more difficult. Yeah. A lot more energy was expended and a lot less successful with people getting cut in half quite That's frequently. True. You are correct there. But if anyone could figure it out, it would be Jones. Agreed. Which is crazy. And the other thing is, you have to think about it this way, is you've got two more episodes left before the finale. Ultimately, closing the bridge, is it what's going to defeat Jones in the end? Right. When you get that third episode before the finale, it's always kind of that last-ditch effort to stop the bad guy before you go to extremes to go after him. And so now next week is going to be them going to the extreme to try and stop him with whatever he's doing. Next week's part one of the finale, right? Yes. Okay. So I don't know. The other thing of it is at this point, this might have been before Fox came to them and said, this is it. You know, this is done. So they might have said it this way to say, if we didn't get a, you know, fifth season, then we we closed out the story on the other side. You know, we did our Walter, Walter didn't see, and we've got it done. So now that the word got to them that they're going to get another season, you know, that might have changed things a little bit for the two-part finale. Well, John Noble said that they had shot two separate endings for the, right. the finale. So I think they had it, it worked out regardless of whether they got renewed yeah. like they did or canceled they had a, a, yeah. a, a way it was already shot so that they have i think we will see that extra on the on the dvds when they finally come out we will see that ending which will be cool because we'll see essentially we'll get two series finales for this right. show because I, I do, I, I felt if I did not know the news that we had this week after watching, you know, with watching that episode, I would have thought it was done the way that they ended it with the other side. I would have been like, we got our Walter alternate scene. This is it. We're headed for, you know, series finale. So now that I had that news, I think I, I actually enjoyed this episode more, too, from that standpoint. Yeah, that's what I was saying in in my opening was having knowing that it wasn't going to be the end really, I think, opened me up to this episode. Because I would have really taken this episode as, oh man, we're we're at the end. If they didn't say before this episode was released, no, 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 you get more episodes. I'm like, yes. 
The other thing is, do you think that Jones might be doing what he's doing to stop the observers? Yeah, I like that idea that it's possible that he he foresees they're coming or knows that they're coming and therefore is is trying to do what he thinks is best but ultimately he's doing it in a sort of evil villain way well yeah and that would make sense and it totally explain why we got that little piece of information last week from the future about the observers invading so we understand what jones might be trying to prevent if that's what they're going right again that might not be the case we don't know we'll see where this goes because fringe always has a tendency to surprise us and the good thing is now that they have another season, they can pull more crazy on us than have time to be able to explain it. So with that, we're going to move on to another episode on this Friday night that we're discussing that probably made Nico equally happy. Probably had a, a good night after watching this episode. So let's talk about the Supernatural episode that I'm really excited about hearing his thoughts on because I think it's going to be fun. The Girl with the Dungeons and Dragons at 2. The brothers get word that Dick Roman has obtained Frank's hard drive and is using an unsuspected hacker to decrypt it. While the Winchesters try to find her, Bobby tries to help them, but finds himself giving in to his rage against the Leviathan CEO. On this week's Supernatural, Nico was shot by Cupid's arrow, as Felicia Day appeared in this episode as a hacker who helped the Winchesters uncover Dick Roman's master plan in this show's probably best utilized guest starring role. Don't get me wrong, Supernatural has had some great guest stars, but they are normally cast in roles that are completely different than the characters we originally know them as. Or they are completely underused, like when Jewel State showed up on Supernatural earlier this season. But Felicia Day's guest spot was completely designed for the fans of her previous work, like The Guild, got Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, as an uber-geek-like Nico, probably would gaga over Felicia's character of Charlie, the fan girl hacker throughout this entire episode from her busting a move to i'm walking on sunshine on the elevator to her cubicle filled with a bunch of superhero fantasy sci-fi memorabilia including some impressive bobbleheads plus the charlie character had some great interactions with the winchester brothers as sam used the concept of what would her mighty granger do as a means of inspiring charlie to go through with the plan of hacking dick roman's personal email and dean gave her tips on how to flirt with a security guard which was kind of awkward in the sense that he knew exactly what to say. And I loved how Charlie kept repeating what Dean was saying through her earpiece, even when she wasn't supposed to be repeating him. Then again, the only disappointing thing about Felicia Day's guest appearance was her character turning out to be gay, because Nico and I hoped that she would be a fun one-time love interest for Dean. But I guess the writers squashed our aspirations to appease the hardcore fans that feel a woman's presence stands in the way of what this show is really about, the relationship between the brothers. As for this episode's story, I like that they went with a heist feel because it was something fresh for the show. And I thought that having the classic flashback characteristics of movies like Ocean's Eleven, which showed how Dick Roman was duped by being given a suitcase bomb wired with borax, that much more of a potage factor when exploding in the Leviathan's faces. Also, with this season's big bad being Dick Roman, a monster disguised as a corporate CEO, Supernatural's writers had to go for a heist episode. And yes, the way actor James Patrick Stewart plays Dick Roman still reminds me of Christian Bale in American Psycho, which was a great but yet chilling performance from Bale. And the fact that this guy on Supernatural is recapturing it and putting it into this Leviathan monster is pretty impressive in my book. 
At the same time, having Bobby, who I've missed greatly on this show, be brought back into the fold by acting as Charlie's guardian angel because she went through Roman Industries headquarters was a nice touch, especially when we got that awesome climax scene where Bobby went all badass vengeful spirit on Dick Roman. But at the same time, this moment put a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach that Sam and Dean are going to have to maybe burn his bones for pulling possibly a cast on them next season or the season finale as him possibly taking out Dick Roman makes him an insanely powerful ghost. On the other hand, Sam and Dean have bigger issues to deal with right now than Bobby's ghostly activities as the switcheroo they pulled with Dick Rowan's Leviathan buddies left them with a hunk of clay that leaves them perplexed on the Leviathan's motivations. I mean, what are they trying to do here? Create Wonder Woman? Who was born out of clay? Anyway, in any of my side of the discussion, I really enjoyed Felicia Day showing up on this week's Supernatural. I kind of hope that she comes back again, because even though this episode wasn't a dramatic build-up to a season finale, like we got on Fringe, it still made a great lead-in, with Felicia Day's presence allowing us to kind of enjoy the status quo that has been established this season, before all the fire and brimstone, beginning with next episode, throws everything out of whack. And with that, it's time to pass things out to Nico for him to express his undying love for Felicia Day in this really well-done episode of Supernatural. Felicia Day was doing what Felicia Day does best, playing a geeky, nerdy girl that I absolutely fell in love with. Charlie was a computer hacker geek, Harry Potter-loving nerd, and the Comic-Con attending love of my life. If I hadn't fallen for her just for being played by Felicia Day, she won my heart in the scene in which she started dancing in the elevator to Walking on Sunshine. Yes, this episode was everything and more that I had hoped for when I heard that my absolute favorite Queen of the Geeks and my ultimate geek fantasy, Felicia Day, was going to be on an episode of Supernatural. As for the episode, this is one of the few Dick Roman slash Leviathan episodes that I actually enjoyed. It seemed to actually move that overall story arc forward in a big way after having left the Leviathan story off for more than a few weeks. For most of the season, Dan and I have complained that we felt it was clear that they missed the mark with making the Leviathans the big bad villains this year. What has really plagued the Leviathan story arc has been that in previous years of the show, the season-long storylines built on earlier years and were closely tied to Sam and Dean's family history. The producers may have wanted to reset things this year, however, not only are the Leviathans disconnected from season 1 through 6, but the impending doom that is supposedly on its way hasn't been successfully translated into a sense of urgency in the week-to-week episodes, which we saw very much in the first five seasons of this show. So why do I say that this week was better? Because where they have failed to have any real urgency all season, they were more successful in establishing that sense of urgency in this episode, especially for Charlie's safety. There's a reason Felicia is so popular in the nerdverse, and you could see it here in the feisty yet also vulnerable Charlie. And they put her in a very vulnerable spot this week to great effect and really brought us all into the struggle with the Leviathan. I really did not want them to eat my Felicia, so it was good that they didn't. We also finally got an idea of what the Leviathan's endgame is. Not a complete picture, but at least an idea. And we know that they're doing the same thing we've done to cows, genetically enhancing them to be the perfect specimens to bake that perfect meal. Kind of awesome, kind of freaky at the same time. That's been a lot for you. 
ultimately, we still don't have a real clear picture of what the Leviathans plan to do now. Making or what Wonder that, Woman out of clay. Yeah, or what the heck that clay archaeological artifact was. But at least this week's episode was better than any previous Leviathan episode. Not sure what the endgame is or how the boys plan to kill all the Leviathans at once to rid our society of these creatures that seem to have infiltrated almost all aspects of our lives. But this episode left me a little more hopeful that there is a plan and that it may work out in the end for this somewhat unexpected season of Supernatural. Yeah, yeah. the thing I, the thing I a little bit argue with on the Leviathan thing as I thought it really built up nicely throughout the first half of the season and then they kind of lost it in the second half. Yes, they built them up as maybe bad guys, but we really had no idea what their goal was. Yeah, you know, with, even when it flashed with back, the demons, we always had an idea of where they were going, right. you know, or, or at least that they were out just to be demons. We didn't know what the Leviathan's goal was, what their motivation was, or anything of that nature. So that made it hard to really follow. Yeah. But you are right. They they did a better job in the first half of the season and then just left it off. And we went back to almost, you know, a monster a week approach every week. Because I was thinking about this, even in the, like, they did that flashback at the beginning of the episode, kind of showing each of the clues that kind of tied together the Leviathan's big plan. Right. And all of that stuff was from the first half of this season. Right. And so it was just like, you know, they, they needed to be a little more consistent on it, I guess, is, is the best way to do it. And by the halfway mark of the season, you're supposed to be somewhat still in the dark on what the big bad plan is. But then when you come back, you've got to explain what it is right away. And, and Supernatural just didn't do that. Which may be why they're bringing in a new showrunner next season and things like that because of the inconsistency of how this arc was dealt with. But okay. I, yeah. I still have to say it's better than season six. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this this feels much more like Supernatural. It might not be as good as it was in the past, but that's fine. And the other thing is, with this show being on so long, it's hard to find something that connects all the way back to the Winchester's paths and make it workable anymore. Yeah, I guess. I just liked that that's the way it was in yeah. the first five seasons and a little bit in some of season six because a lot of six led back to the cast story and yeah. also with Sam and, and Dean. Everything that had happened in the first five seasons was being built upon in season six, even though it was unsuccessful and was the worst yeah. season of the series. It still harkened back to those first five good seasons. Yeah. So it, this season seems to be a complete reset of the, the story, much like we sort of expected at the beginning of six once they had averted the apocalypse. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just expecting too much. I, I mean, honestly, it should have ended probably with five. But now the CW network, based on the information you shared with us, then the news section is kind of on the to in the toilet. Right. So they need Supernatural, to be honest, to, to stick around or they're in big trouble. And again, we might get a really good finale. So it might all be fine. And, and I think things with Bobby worked out pretty well throughout the season. And the other thing is, next week I have a feeling that we might get an explanation as to why they went into all the Satan stuff and kind of took a step back from the Viathans for a while. I think they're going to tie everything together. Okay. Because next week we're having angels come in, Cass is coming back, and some other stuff. So maybe they're going to tie everything together. It'll all make sense. But for this episode, it was a lot of fun, and Felicia Day being there was great. Yep. So I think that just about wraps it up on Supernatural. We're just going to be looking forward to what happens with the finale. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So are you ready to move on to the closing now, Nico? I am indeed. All right. Well, why don't you share with everybody what's coming down on next week's episode? 
Yeah, on next week's episode, we head into the home stretch for the 2011-2012 TV season as it's almost all hands on deck with reviews of episodes of Once Upon a Time, Bones, Castle, Person of Interest, Fringe, and Supernatural, as well as our favorite comedic moments from Modern Family, The Big Bang Theory, and Community. If you're looking for our reviews on Green Lantern, the animated series, and Young Justice, be sure to check out our DC Nation podcast hosted by Dan and Michael, also available on our website and iTunes. Also, check out our Across the Airways Retro Reviews podcast, hosted by Michael J. Petty. Get his partner in crime, Woo Kim. And basically, they've changed their title from Marvel Retro Reviews to just Retro Reviews because they are soon going to start covering previous episodes of Chuck as well as their Smallville Reviews. And they also cover a lot of past episodes of other shows like Supernatural. And they're going to be adding a little bit more superheroes talk to their show as well. So definitely check out that podcast. Also, I'd invite you all to check out our recently completed Road to the Avengers podcast miniseries, where Michael and I have basically provided you guys with audio commentary on all of the films leading up to the Avengers movie coming out on May 4th. And on those podcasts, we have all sorts of speculations about the Avengers movie, how we think the great story written by Joss Whedon is going to play out, some of the fight scenes, and just some really great Marvel comics talk in general. Also, the Avengers movie is less than a week away, so we're very fired up about that as well here at ATA. Also, if you'd like to talk with us about your thoughts on the Avengers movie, on any of the episodes that we're covering this week, your predictions for the season finales coming up, or any of the shows we cover on our DC Nation podcast, feel free to contact us by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Again, it's acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Also, you can like us on Facebook to access all of Nico's movie and TV news he finds out during the week. You can also stay updated on the releases of our podcast episodes. And you can do the same thing by following us on Twitter. And our Twitter is Across Airways. There's no the there. It's just Across Airways. Also, you can keep updated on everything Across the Airways by following us on Google Plus as well. And if you'd like to give us any of your crackpot theories on any of the shows we cover, you can leave us a voicemail, which we would love to play and discuss on air. But we'd love to hear what some of you guys out there listening to our podcast think of our show as well as the shows we cover. Then what number can they call to leave us a voicemail? 773-809-3363. Yes, definitely call that number. We'll play your voicemail on air. Also, if you'd like, you could access our YouTube channel, which features Nico's video podcast, News with Nico. Also on our YouTube channel, you can access previews and promos for upcoming movies and TV show episodes. And also, you can access a playlist on our YouTube channel filled with all the DC Nation shorts that we discuss on our DC Nation podcast. Also, you can download our Android app, which you can use to communicate with our podcast and interact, as well as listen to our podcast episodes all through your cellular phone. So once again, for our Retro Reviews hosts, Michael J. Petty and Wu Kim, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustak. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airways. Get enjoy everything as we head into the season finales, guys. See ya. Lifts, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.